Luke chapter 22, the heading above this passage in my Bible says, Peter denies Jesus, but I titled our sermon, Denying Jesus, because Peter's not the only one who does it. So let's read, starting in verse 54, and we'll read all the way through verse 71. Hear the word of God. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance, and when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man was also with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I... Do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows, today you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many of the things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Let's pray. Father, we thank you now for this, your word. Your word is truth. Pray, O God, that you transform our hearts and convict us. Lord, through this passage, as we glean its power and its import for us, that we may be transformed, that our minds may be renewed, let us leave differently than the way we came in. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you've been a Christian more than five minutes, you've certainly experienced uh, some kind of failure that you knew disappointed God. I don't need to ask you, raise your hand if that's ever happened to you, because it has happened to you. Certainly, each one of us, at times in our life, in our faith walk, we let God down, we know we do. We fail. And we feel in ourselves, certainly, that we've disappointed God, and sometimes we do disappoint God. And those failures always seem, at least in my life, to come right on the heels of some boast about how strong I am. 
Someone says, how, how, how are you doing? How's your walk with the Lord? Oh, it couldn't be better. Like within a week, something happens that you know, I trip all over myself and my faith fumbles and stumbles. And I always am reminded, and back to the conversation I had about a week or a few days earlier about how I was just kind of rejoicing and how strong I felt, how victorious I was feeling. You know, one minute you can be soaring above the mountains and the next you're plunging headlong down to earth. And it can happen just like that. It's happened to us all and the Bible is replete with these kind of examples. Replete with examples of men and women who were brought down a few pegs and experienced the pain of failure if only to make them recognize that faithfulness cannot happen apart from the grace and strength of God. Faithfulness cannot happen apart from the grace and strength of God. I've also seen this in ministry where some new convert wants to be elevated. The church I grew up in the pastor and the ministers, they, they sit up on the, um, you know, the stage. And young men would come in and they would see that and they would long for that kind of limelight recognition. And they would tell the pastor, I want to be a minister. I want to be a preacher. And sometimes the pastor or an elder foolishly would elevate them too quickly without them having enough time to mature in their faith and experience the growth and the pain of failure and faithfulness. They hadn't learned that balance of humility and reliance on the grace of God, and they'd be elevated and promoted, and they were not able to handle the pressure of that kind of responsibility, and it usually led quickly to disaster or some type of catastrophic um, failure of faithfulness that made themselves and the church look really bad. And it all boiled down to them not having learned the necessary humility to avoid the danger of spiritual overconfidence. The danger of spiritual overconfidence. I don't know if that's a phrase you've ever heard before, but we can be spiritually overconfident and think too much of ourselves, think too much of our faith in terms of thinking that we're stronger maybe than we really are. And the result, of course, is not relying on the Lord, not leaning on the Lord. You know that song, leaning, leaning, leaning on the everlasting arms? Right, We get so puffed up sometimes, or sometimes our ego takes control, we don't realize that we're, we've ceased to lean on the Lord. And it can also happen when we hate the sins of others more than we hate our own sins. The people I admire most in their faith, the people who are the most diligent, it seems, are the ones who grieve their own sins ten times more than the sins of others. They rarely don't condemn other people because they're focused on their own sins, in a good way, I mean. 
I don't mean they can't get out from underneath the guilt of their sins. I mean that they recognize that they shouldn't be pointing out the speck in someone else's eye when they've got a beam in their own. That's another way we can be spiritually overconfident, which leads to disaster, is when we're myopic about our own shortcomings and we pointing out the sins always of others. And these are people who are praying, right? When you're aware of your own sins all the time, acutely aware of your own shortcomings, you're always praying for yourself not to fall into temptation. And this is exactly where this scene comes on the heels of. Jesus has just been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and rebuked the disciples for not watching and praying that they don't enter into temptation. Remember the story, they... Jesus finds them sleeping. And he says, you shouldn't have been sleeping. You should have been praying that you didn't enter into temptation. And that was the admonition he gave them. And among those who fail at this command of Jesus to watch and pray so they don't enter into temptation and be puffed up with the sin, if you could, the fault of spiritual overconfidence is Peter. You know, Paul is famous for saying, I'm the chief among sinners. Well, Peter was first. And Peter is this passionate disciple who one minute boasts of his undying loyalty to Jesus and the next minute is stumbling in his faith. One minute he is proclaiming with Jesus You know, he's the one who says, when Jesus says, who do men say that I am, and then who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of God. In one minute, he is receiving, you know, this revelation from God about who Jesus is, and the next minute, he's plunging headlong from the mountaintop down to earth. Peter's kind of like a reality TV show star. You know, we... In the past 10 or 15 years, reality TV shows have become so popular because you see all the, the ups and downs, the ins and outs, and the ugliness and the, of, of real people. They're not actors. In fact, reality shows have become so popular that they've displaced many you know, bona fide television programs because as painful as it is to watch other people, it's like we can't look away. That's what's going on here with Peter. We're being forced to look at this disciple of Jesus. Don't look away. Look at this painful experience of this chief disciple. And Jesus knew the tendency in all disciples, but in Peter specifically, and he says in verse 31, which I meant to read at the beginning and I forgot to read it. In verse 31, He says, Simon, Satan desired to have you so that he could sift you like wheat. But I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. What a frightening statement from Jesus. Hey, in case you didn't know, Satan himself wants to sift you like wheat. Yeah, you weren't aware of that. But the devil himself wants to grind you to powder. Satan desired to sift you like wheat. 
How does Jesus know this? Well, apparently that's part of the perks of being the Son of God. You know stuff like that. And Jesus knew that Peter was the target of Satan's attacks. And Jesus was praying for him. In other words, Peter, or fill in the blank with your own name, the devil is constantly thinking of ways to destroy your faith. The devil is constantly seeking ways to undermine your walk with the Lord. The devil wants to destroy you, is what Jesus is saying to Peter. And this revelation, this idea that Jesus preemptively prays for us. Hebrews says that Jesus, as a high priest, is before the throne of God, offering the blood of his once-for-all perfect sacrifice, and now lives, he lives to make intercession for us. That's what the Bible says. That Jesus as a high priest, now stands forever, permanently before the throne of God, offering the pure sacrificial blood of himself before the throne of God, which purifies us from our sins and now lives to make intercession on our behalf. Jesus praying for his people. And when Peter hears this, when Peter hears Jesus say, Satan desires to sift you, but I, but I prayed for you, this is what he says, my faith fail. Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Faith fail? Jesus, you are all wrong. I'm right now ready to go with you to death. I'm ready to die with you and to go to prison. And Jesus said, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times. And so Jesus is arrested and he's carried off and Peter trails behind until they reach the high priest's mansion. And there are people outside the high priest's home warming themselves by the fire and apparently like a government official, that's the high priest, the position of the high priest by this time in Israel's history is a religio-political position. It's a position of incredible power. And so people are always coming and going, and so there are people in the courtyard probably waiting on seeing the high priest, and Peter, who's following from afar, he warms himself by the fire with these other people in the courtyard like people at a courthouse waiting for a hearing. And so he's out there, and Jesus is somewhere being tried, being questioned. And the key thing for us to see here is that Peter is present with Jesus, but he's following at a distance. Are you following Jesus at a distance this morning? Following him at a distance? Maybe you admire Jesus, but you don't want to get too close to him for fear of experiencing what he experienced. I think there's a lot of people who follow Jesus at a distance. 
But the closer we get, the closer we get to his experiences. That is the nature of discipleship. That is the nature of an apprenticeship with Jesus, which is what discipleship is. And in an apprenticeship, you learn what the master of the trade is teaching, and you experience what he experiences. In an apprenticeship, you join the teacher in his skills and trials because you have to learn what it means to do what he does or she does. And so discipleship is this apprenticeship that the closer we get to actually mastering discipleship, what it means to be a disciple, the closer it is we get to Jesus and his own experiences, and that is painful for some of us, and so we follow Jesus at a distance because it hurts sometimes to get close for fear of experiencing his experiences. And in American Christian culture, uh, maybe among all Christians in the world, we seem to be the most averse to suffering. Now, this has a lot to do with the fact that we are a prosperous culture. And that makes the Jesus we tend to worship the Jesus of the good times. You've heard the phrase, you know, good time Charlie. Well, often in many churches in our country, it's good time Jesus. We don't, we don't want to know bad time Jesus. We don't want that Jesus. We don't want the Jesus of suffering. We know he went to the cross, but any idea that we would have to join him in that, no. The good time, we love the Jesus of the miracles, the Jesus of the fishes and the loaves, the Jesus of incredible miraculous providence. We love that Jesus, but the Jesus of suffering and the Jesus who experienced mockings and beatings and scourgings and ridicule, we're not, that's, that's not the popular Jesus in our That Jesus is not very popular among us. And it makes sense. That's the, that's the hard road of discipleship. The Jesus who suffers and agonizes and sweats blood clots. That Jesus is not so popular. And Peter sits down in the fire in the courtyard hoping to blend in with the visitors unnoticed. But then it happens. A servant girl sees him sitting in the light and looks closely at him and says, this man was also with him. But Peter denied personally knowing Jesus. Now, as we preach through the book of Luke, you may remember in Luke chapter 12, Jesus said, the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Jesus was already setting, putting down the gauntlet, setting the standard for what it means to name the name of Jesus and be a disciple. It means that you don't deny Jesus when times get rough. I've shared with some of you that in my teenage years in Los Angeles, I belonged to a Hispanic gang. I lived in a rough area. My father was an alcoholic. I got swept up in the 1980s when the drug scene was, excuse me, the gang scene was sweeping across Los Angeles. This was the advent of the drive-by shooting. And I got jumped into a Hispanic gang at about right when I hit 14 years old and spent six years in a gang. 
And the worst thing you could do, the worst thing you could do was have another gang ask what gang you were from and you deny your gang. We had a word for it. We called it ranking out. I don't even, I don't even know why that phrase came to be, but if it got back to your homeboys that somebody asked what gang you were from and because you were afraid because maybe you were outnumbered or someone had a gun and you didn't say what gang you were from, it was over. And so guys would rather take the risks of getting shot and even killed and have all of their homies remember them that they were true and they didn't rank out, as we used to say. And it was tough because some guys died. This idea that what it really means to follow something or someone means that you don't deny it or you, at the very least, you don't profess it when times are easy. This is the, this is the crucible of real discipleship. Because anybody can confess Jesus when things are going well. I mean, Jesus is essentially acknowledging that, and that's what this statement in Luke 12 is all about, and that's why Luke wants us to look at the story of Peter, because this is not a victory, this is a failure. But God's going to bring good out of it. Jesus is going to redeem it all. But you don't deny Jesus when things get rough. A little later, someone else sees Peter and says, you're also one of them, meaning the disciples. And Peter said, no, I'm not, you know, like a kid. No, I'm not. I'm not, I'm not a disciple. I'm, I'm not one of them. And then finally, about an hour later, Peter's country accent gives him away. Certainly, this man was with him, for he too is a Galilean. People from Galilee were kind of known as country bumpkins. And so Galileans had a certain Middle Eastern twang, if you will, and they recognized him. This is a Galilean. Some commentators say it might have been the way he was dressed, but likely it was his accent. They spoke, he spoke a kind of country grammar, if you will, up in the Galilee. And he denies it. And this time, Peter's denial is emphatic, and he says, I don't know what you're talking about. You know how sometimes when you, when you call people out for things they've done, and you know you've hit the target, the bullseye, they get real vehement, you know? They get really worked up, because you, you know, you've struck a nerve. And Peter now is all worked up. Now, we think that Peter's denial, we tend to think, well, he was afraid to get arrested with Jesus and get crucified too. But that may not actually be what's going on. What might be going on is, in Peter's mind, he said, I'm willing to go to prison and death with you when he thought that Jesus was the military leader that all of Israel expected him to be. In other words, if you're going to Jerusalem, you're going to the temple, it's so this Messiah king can take over like a military ruler, and Peter was excited about that prospect. I'll go to death fighting in you know, military battle with you. But when Jesus is arrested, and he realizes that the whole movement, at least his version of the movement, is going to come to a screeching halt, his denial of Jesus may simply be the fact that he doesn't want to die for a lost cause. It's over now. The glory and the, you know, 
the fame of being right next to the new David or the new Judas Maccabeus, this new military ruler who was going to overturn the power of pagan Rome, well, that was exciting to die for that cause. But now that Jesus is arrested and it looks like it's all over, well, why die for that? It's probably what was going on in Peter's mind. And it's at that moment of his third denial that the rooster crows and somehow, some way, Jesus is being transported across the courtyard and as he hears that rooster crow, he locks eyes with Jesus and remembers the words that Jesus said to him in the middle of his spiritual overconfidence and boasting, today, before the rooster crows three times, you will deny me. And it says he went out and wept bitterly. That word that's used is the idea of tasting something bitter, like a bitter herb, something that makes your stomach sour. He wept bitterly. And it's in the bitter failure of Peter that his restoration lies. There is something very good about feeling very bad when we do the wrong things. Because it shakes us and it wakes us from whatever spiritual slumber we were in in the first place that caused us to stumble. We call it conviction. Have you ever heard that word before, conviction? The fact that it does not sit well with us when we disappoint God and disobey Him is a very, very good thing, and it means the Holy Spirit is at work in your heart. How do, how do you know the Holy Spirit is at work? Because you're not okay with sinning. You don't sin with impunity. You don't sin presumptuously. When you fall short of the glory of God, you know it. And Peter, in that moment knows it, and he weeps bitterly and runs out of that place. You know, it's often in the pain of our most glaring lapse in faithfulness that we seek and find the true source of strength to live for God, which is grace. In the bitter pain of our failures, that's when we recognize that we can't do it on our own. And we need God's grace. And wonderfully, that's what grace is for. That's what the grace of God is for, is to do in you what you can't accomplish in you. It is accomplishing It is meant to accomplish in you what you yourself cannot do. Now we know, according to the book of Acts, that Peter is destined for future greatness. The first half of the book of Acts, Peter is the leader of the Jerusalem church before Paul comes on the scene. We know he didn't stay in that place of bitter failure. He was, he recovered. His Denial of Jesus was not absolute. His failure isn't absolute. Jesus restores him. 
And the lesson for us in these verses, there are two lessons that I want us to see. One of them is Jesus's identity as Lord is not threatened by the fallibility of his followers. That's good news. That's real good news. The lordship of Jesus Christ in the world stands independently of anything we do because at times we can be totally unreliable as his disciples and yet he still is who he is. So in spite of Peter's failure, in spite of our failures, the lordship of Jesus Christ stands independently of our ups and downs in faith. And number two, there is a danger in spiritual overconfidence. Peter was overconfident in his spiritual abilities. And at this point, his walk wasn't a grace walk, if you can put it that way. It was a personal strength walk. It was an ego walk. His spiritual fortitude melted in the face of pressure. And his overconfidence was put to the test when he tried to blend in. Now, for every one of us, it might be something different. But for Peter, it was this, his, his ego walk faith, the faith that was grounded upon his own ego, melted when he tried to blend in. There's, there's, everybody's got a kryptonite. For Peter, it was that, this blending in, this desire to blend in. Well, the reality is, you know, of course, as Christians, we can never fully blend in unless we choose to be utterly silent, which is really not an option for us. The only way you'll fully blend in with the people around you, with the world around you, is by being completely silent. And this is where the rubber meets the road of our faith. It's often not just enduring trials, but in terms of the world's opinion of us, it's what comes out of our mouth. Because people don't care if you have a private faith. I mean, no, nobody cares that you have a... In fact, the pressure in our culture right now is to get Christians to push their faith back into behind closed doors. Right? That's where they want you to have your faith. Oh, believe in anything you want. You believe in rocks. I don't care. Just don't tell me about it. I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to hear your opinion. I don't, I don't want to hear about what you believe but that is exactly what the gospel is. It is this idea that because Jesus is Lord of the universe, that we can't remain silent, which means we'll never fully be able to blend in. And if you know that going forward, you won't be shocked when people reject you because of your faith. To be truly steadfast in the face of challenges to your faith you need confidence, but the right kind of confidence. And this is really the key to understanding this whole thing. Confidence is good. The wrong kind of confidence is bad. The most inspiring Christians I know, some of whom are pastors, some of whom are just regular lay people in the pews, are people who have no self-confidence. None. I don't mean they don't have confidence at all, but they don't have confidence in themselves. Those are the most inspiring Christians I know have 
learn to have no confidence in themselves. All of their confidence comes from God, and they know that they are what they are by the grace of God. In fact, that's my message to you this morning. You are what you are by the grace of God, and without the grace of God, you are nothing as a Christian. It is all of grace, and you need that grace constantly refreshed through the empowering of the Holy Spirit. You need that. That's why Jesus is telling the disciples, pray, 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 pray. And they're falling asleep, and when they fall asleep, they don't pray, and they get weaker. The grace of God is there for us, and we access that strength. Prayer is a means of that grace, just like preaching and the supper. People who have no confidence in themselves but all confidence in God have failed enough times to realize that it's only by grace and the empowering of the Spirit, which does need to be refreshed constantly, that they can unashamedly name the name of Christ and identify with Jesus both in his victory and in his suffering. So you need confidence, just not in yourself. And this is really tough when we live in an age where most messages that come across many pulpits is really a message of kind of self-esteem. And that's tough because some people suffer from a very low view of themselves and it causes them to make harmful life decisions. Sometimes it's promiscuity or drug abuse and that has a lot to do with a poor self-esteem, but self-esteem can swing so far in the opposite direction where it's so high that we think that that's the key and goal of the gospel, is to just get us to believe in us. And that's not right either, because we ultimately fail. Paul writes these two, in closing, Paul Paul writes these two letters to the Corinthians. And the Corinthian church was all messed up. There were all these heresies and sins and if you just read Corinthians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, but mostly 1st Corinthians, he identifies all of these crazy things that they were doing as a church. And one of them was ignorance at the way that they were yielding themselves to sinful behaviors. And this is what he says in 1st Corinthians 10:12. Let the one who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. May each of us take heed by looking to Jesus for strength and grace to live each and every single day because without it, we're nothing. Let's pray. Father, now we thank you for Peter's denial because it's a portrait into each one of our own hearts. That we too can be lifted up in self-confidence and ego. And when that happens, we stop relying on the grace of God, on the empowering of the Holy Spirit, which we need every single day to live faithfully and obediently in our apprenticeship with you. We know, O God, that the Christian walk is not pure suffering. 
There are many beautiful and wonderful moments of our life. And there are many things that cause us to rejoice. But there are times when we feel acutely that same suffering, that agony of soul and spirit, and emotional torment that Christ felt not only in the garden, but on his way to the cross. Help us to lean on you, to trust in you, to look to you for all of our hope and strength. And recognize that our own strength will always fall short without relying and trusting in you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.